Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest, Dr. R.T. Javeri Mehta. And I met her a few months ago. I think she reached out to me actually on social media or somewhere. I can't remember how we were connected, but we speak the similar love language of lifestyle medicine. So it feels like I've known her for much longer than I've actually known her. Dr. RT is an internal medicine specialist, board certified lifestyle medicine physician, mother of three, the co-founder of PCOS and us, and the founder of Sustained Health. Dr. Arti is a passionate lifestyle medicine physician. She is the global ambassador of the European Lifestyle Medicine Organization in the UAE, and she's also delivered a series of key presentations across conferences on this topic. She's also passionate about personalized, empathetic, and approachable patient care with high standards of quality. She has worked with hundreds of patients globally to help improve their lifestyle and consequently improve chronic disease. She spends time with patients to establish the root of all concerns, to diagnose, to educate, and subsequently derive management plans that are easy to follow and derive big results. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Dr. Arti, and thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you're here because there's a lot that we have to talk about today. And some topics that are very near near and dear to me that I'm super excited to get your insight. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. And it's so nice to see that um, there's so many more people involved in the kind of lifestyle world and the wellness world. And I think um, when I started practicing this like eight, nine years ago, I think there was, you know, the conversation was very much to a few people. And it's nice to see that now there's so many more people involved in this and we're trying to push it forward, especially in this area of the world. Yeah, there, there's so many. So that is a great segue into my first question, because I've always been aware of health and wellness and living well, living healthy, eating well. And actually, I was thinking, I need to see if I can find a picture like from my childhood when I was in my father's garden. They were always into organic gardening, eating healthy and all of these things. And one of my first memories is sitting in the dirt and just eating a green bean from wow. the plant. I, yeah. I really, and I still love green beans, like raw green beans. If you gave me a bowl of them, I could just, <laughs> eat them. um, but having said that, I, in thinking about health and wellness and everything around it and lifestyle over time. Now, like you said, it seems not that it's everywhere because we're living and working in this topic all the time, but do you think there's a tipping point that happened a few years ago where suddenly everyone's talking about it. People are more aware of it. We're being bombarded with a, with a lot of messages around it. And when do you think that happened or when did it take off? So I think, I mean, for most of us, if we've been in this field, like it's the conversation has kind of been happening for the last like decade, at least in this kind of area. Right. But I think in the last like five or six years, there's definitely been that increased amount of awareness. Now, whether that's been because of the rise in chronic disease, um, you know, more diabetes around uh, happening at a younger age as well. I mean, my six-year-old came home the other day and he was telling me, mama, do you know what we learned about gut bacteria? 
And there are certain things in my food that will affect my gut bacteria. And wow, blown away because I said when we were, I mean, I think I learned about it like, you know, five years ago, six years ago, not definitely not when I was six years old. So you're right in the sense that there's a lot more awareness out there right now. And I think there's, there's also a double-sided coin, right? I think there's a lot more noise in the wellness world right now. And that's where we kind of need to start paying attention to what the sources are, what's the evidence base behind it. Because I think there's a really fine line kind of between lifestyle medicine that is evidence-based versus some things that may not particularly be evidence-based. Regardless, wellness in itself is becoming of paramount importance. So I think it's probably the fact that we've seen the rates of obesity really increase in the last 10 years. We've seen the rates of chronic disease really increase in the last 10 years. I think the WHO came out with a study recently and it actually showed that the GCC in itself, some of the countries in it actually ranked top 10 for obesity worldwide. And that number is just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I think it's, I think it's the fact that we're diagnosing it earlier because of the methods that we have to diagnose it. Um, we're more aware of it. And we obviously have more studies showing that lifestyle in itself greatly improves it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, recently there was another statistic that came out like last week or a week before, and it said by a certain year, I forget the year, the, the target year, the expected year, 50% of the world's population will be obese. Yeah. yeah. Which is a lot, a lot. And, and that includes yeah. a lot of children and, and different things like this. So, so yeah, like you said, there is a lot of noise and around the topic as well, because we're at Dia Point, we're all about evidence-based and when I decided to become a coach, I was seeking out, well, who is doing this right? Because a background in healthcare quality, right? So there's a lot of people coaching with good intentions and focusing on different lifestyle things, but sometimes that also recommending things that may not be fully aligned or may work for one person, but not work for another person because no two people are alike. And the same thing with gut health, no no two people are alike in their gut health. I started becoming really aware of gut health when I always read the research about type 1 diabetes because as the, the parent of a child with an immune condition, when they started researching gut health and talking about it, then of course I wanted to know more and having a lot more understanding about its importance. Um, is, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that they were talking to your, your son about it because- yeah then going forward, people will better understand about the foods they eat and how processed foods are not supporting it. So, so yeah, that's, that's just really, really good. So why don't we then backtrack a bit? Tell us a little bit about your background and then how you got more into the lifestyle medicine space. So I started, um, I moved to India after a few years after I graduated from med school and um, I kind of stumbled across lifestyle medicine, I think. And I was probably informally practicing it for nearly a decade now. And I didn't really realize that there was a formal certification process with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So I think it probably happened maybe eight or nine years ago where we were kind of in a busy clinic in India. And as you can imagine, I think we see like 40 patients in a clinic, you know, it's, it's ridiculous amounts. You're really time pressured. Um, you don't have enough time to spend with a patient and we would, all our prescriptions were kind of be, you know, lose weight exercise. And then we give them a list of the medications. 
And then as your as months started going by, we're kind of seeing the same patients come back over and over again. And we're not really changing anything for them, right? We're we're telling them they're incompliant with medications, or we're telling them, you know, they're not following a diet or they're not eating in a certain way. Um, but then once I think I had a patient and I I said, what happened? And they were like, I actually lost my father. And that's why everything went out of the roof. And I said, you know what? I'm sure so many of these patients have other things that are going on them when it comes to their lifestyle, when it comes to their experiences, when it comes to how they're able to actually maintain that movement and that exercise and that food. And there's so much emotional eating involved and there's, there's so much involved, right? So that's where I said, you know, we really have to shift it. So that's where I actually met my mentor in India. And um, she was also practicing lifestyle medicine and, and we kind of got together and we started practicing it in a way that wasn't formalized. So we'd spend, instead of spending kind of 70% of the consultation on, you know, take this medication and you're not compliant and kind of taking on that approach, we spent 70% of the consultation asking them about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. And then then after it was, oh, here's your medications as well, you know? So I think that really kind of shifted the approach. And when you start practicing in that way, I think you get really lucky because you also start developing that practice and that relationship with patients where you get those patients, right? You attract those patients who really want to understand what's going on in their body, who really want to shift their lifestyle, who are curious, like you find the health literacy levels just go up and it's just, it's amazing. And it's really empowering to see. So that's when I kind of then got board certified in lifestyle medicine. And um, yeah, I've been practicing it since. So there's a lot of kind of exciting work. The thing that I like about it is that it's evidence-based. So um, for, for us, you know, as clinicians, I think being evidence-based, you know, they had the blue ribbon panel, which is basically setting up standards of competencies, your frameworks, so or you really are kind of focusing and you're working in a way that is backed up by evidence-based medicine, which for me is the you know, it's, it's the end all and be all. Right. Yeah. It's so important. And I love actually, and before you said it, I was thinking it when you were talking about how you focus 70% on your patient's lifestyle. And then in my head, I was thinking, wow, the patients must have loved that because they felt heard and seen. And that's almost like a coaching approach rather than like a you know, we think traditional doctor that will come in with a clipboard or open their electronic medical record and be like, huh, your A1C is this, or you're having this problem, or you gained weight, or this, you know, parameters off, which is important, but reaching the, your patient is so important. And what better way to do it than to talk about their lifestyle and what's happening with them. Yeah. And I think you said, I think you said coaching approach, which is exactly you kind of hit the nail on the head. So I think taking on that coaching approach is really important for lifestyle medicine physicians working through things like motivational interviewing. You know, not all patients are ready to change their lifestyle, but really kind of thinking about where they stand for each of those pillars of lifestyle medicine. Are they ready to change just their nutrition? Are they ready to change just their movement? And then how do you kind of get them to that phase of changing rather than just writing them off as being incompliant? So I think my receptionists get a little bit angry at me because I my first consults are always very long. Um, but I think it's important because otherwise that kind of sets up the tone for the rest of your care, right? And that's where you can work with the patient and actually get results. Um, so I think that's really, really important and um, something that we really need to start focusing on as well. Yeah, that's that's super important. And health is a lifelong journey and you want to have this 
it's not an acute thing that you're talking about, whether it's diabetes or not, it's a, it's a lifelong journey and you want that relationship. I have a, a course that teaches healthcare practitioners how to coach people and with diabetes. And I did this for um, some groups and clinics and things like that. And I'll never forget one, the doctors, they were all outstanding. Like clinically, they're very good. But when it came to actually coaching, because doctors aren't really taught how to do this. And it's hard because you're taught to focus on all the clinical things. And that is the area of expertise. And they were all clinically amazing. But when Mm -hmm. it came time to role play and then practicing on each other, (laughs) they kept falling back into the the clinical role. So that was really hard. And it was almost to the point where I'm like, no, like think like you're just having a coffee with a person, like to really (laughs) take them out of the space. Like, you know, but, but even still slipping back into it. But one woman came up to me during the lunch break of that. And she said to me, you know, even my own sister has diabetes. And I never thought to once like ask how she was or take even kind of a coaching approach with her. It was always just like, what's your A1C? What are you doing? You know, what medicines are you taking? And I thought, wow, that, you know, shows the power of what it's like when you start talking to your patients about lifestyle. And even if you're not looking at it, necessarily from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine pillars, just focusing on maybe one of the pillars, if not all of them, depending on, you know, the specialty that that might apply is very powerful. And I think one of the most common misconceptions, and I think the myth and the kind of resistance that we face in the medical world is that um, people think that lifestyle medicine physicians don't prescribe or they're against medications. And that's far from true, right? There is a place for allopathy. There's a place for the surgery. That's what is required. But if you look at the guidelines for the American Association of Family Practitioners, you look at the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, whenever you look at these guidelines and you think about how to manage diabetes, lifestyle is there. It's first. It's actually first. So in glucose tolerance, type 2 diabetes, obesity, lifestyle is there as the first thing. So it's not that we're negating medications. It's just that we're using a lifestyle first approach, right? And we're also medications have their place. Mm-hmm. Surgery has their place. That's definitely something that's required, but it's, you're adding a dimension to your practice more than anything. Yeah. I love that. And that I, it's, it's very hard to change your lifestyle. Change is hard, but at the same time, that is one of the cheapest, most cost-effective things that you can do as a doctor or as the patient. And once you start having that discussion, then that can yeah. save you a lot of challenge, time, even a surgery in the future, possibly. Who knows? It it is a journey. It it is a journey. Amazing. First question. So you and I, we know we're talking about the five pillars of of lifestyle medicine, but I think it's important for, for people that might be hearing about lifestyle medicine for the first time that we go through that. What are those pillars? Okay. So these are six kind of evidence-based therapeutic. I'm sorry, six. Yeah, there's six evidence-based therapeutic lifestyle interventions to help improve chronic diseases, whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular disease, certain cancers, PCOS, all of this, right? So the first is nutrition. So eating healthfully. Now, there are different bodies that kind of advocate a different type of eating, but it's basically plant-predominant or plant-rich diets with whole grains, healthy fats, fibers, all of that to help improve the disease processes. Then there is movement, so regular movement. And I think it's important to be um, very mindful of movement 
in a sense that it's important to include all types of movement. Okay. So even joyful movement, stuff that makes you feel good, stuff that you're basically just regular and consistent with. Yeah. Then we have stress management. So using stress management techniques and tools to help reduce stress, improve anxiety, improve depression, improve mental health overall. Then we have sleep. So improving sleep quality. And then there's connections. So studies have actually shown that positive social connections have been shown to positively improve health and well-being. And then the last is things like substance abuse, right? So we all know that things like um, alcohol, smoking, um, substance misuse can increase the risk of morbidity and mortality. So those are the six pillars that we kind of go through with each of our patients. And we kind of dissect each of them and we help them optimize whatever their lifestyle is to kind of improve the six pillars. Nice. Yeah, that all of those are so important and can be done. And I like that you talked about movement, like positive, what brings you joy? Just get get moving. Um, yeah. When we read about the blue zones, that's one of the, the things that they do. And, and it was actually statistically, I just bought the, um, the blue zone cookbook. I think yeah. it's more primarily about the blue zones in us, but I, I love this topic. Um, and then I knew it was a, you know, regular movement, but like 20 minutes per hour on average is pretty, pretty nice movement, whatever it is. It's not like you have to be hitting it hard at the gym. And as someone recently pointed out to me, we were talking about a program that we were working on for kids. And it's like, yeah, you know, a lot of kids now they're gaming and okay, you go exercise for 30 minutes, but you're sitting in your chair the rest of the day. That doesn't really count as a comprehensive, you know, movement, but you should do things that you love that bring you joy. Yeah. So I think that, that also that non-exercise activity that we're talking about, right. So um, that one hour a day that you move for, and then you're sedentary the rest of the day is kind of pointless. It's, that's only 4% of your day, but the minute you start adding in movement, the rest of the day, that's when you really start reaping the benefits. Um, and I always tell my patients, I think for the ones who have come to me, I, I get to see a lot of, you know, women with disordered eating patterns and body image issues. And, you know, the ones who have kind of been on restrictive diets or have been on these crazy exercise plans where, they're in the position now where they just feel like, look, I don't want to enter a gym and I don't feel amazing when I enter a gym. So we think about what are all of the out of the box ways that you can move and get in those three types of exercise, the aerobic, the resistance and the flexibility. So we're thinking about things like jumping on a trampoline with your kid, you know, taking your friend out for a coffee date and walking. Um, And that's when they start really understanding that, look, you know what, I can actually live a really healthy life when I start reframing my thoughts and I think about movement in this sense so um it's important to just make sure that everyone's aware of those things right that you're not failing if you're not hitting the gym three times a week or four times a week um so yeah I think it's yeah exactly tell me about it I had that own discussion even though I know (laughs) this in my head this morning I was like it didn't sleep well last night, but wanted to get up and maybe go to the gym because I tend to not go to the gym. I work out from home. I walk the dog or run the dog or do other things. But I was like, no, it's okay to still exercise from home, even if it's a video and I still sweat and I still moved and that still counts for something. So I think, yeah, if you're listening and you're beating yourself up because you're not hitting the gym 200% every day, it's okay. 
And I love the walking example because not only is that movement, but that's also connection. So no. you I think both even 10 minutes a day, if you're finding it hard to move, even 10 minutes a day has been shown to be, you know, massively beneficial. It reduces blood pressure. It improves your cognition, improves your focus, your efficiency, all of that. So if you find it hard to get in that hour stretch, 10 minutes at, you know, different spurts of the day is like completely fine as well. Amazing. Yeah. Just start for someone that, okay, let's say they, you know, they haven't been exercising and not feeling as good lately. Maybe they're not eating well, or like you said, they're really confused by all the information about the diets um, and, you know, restrictive diets and things like that. Um, Which pillar would you suggest that they start with first? You know, I think a big underlooked pillar is sleep. And without adequate sleep, I think it's impossible to make any changes to your lifestyle. So many people, like when you're even in the wellness world or when you're doing lifestyle, the first thing you think about automatically is, oh yeah, I need to get my diet in order. I need to get my exercise in order, right? But then what if you're not sleeping properly? You're not going to be able to do any of these. Yep. When we think about our circadian rhythm and we think about the way in which our body functions in accordance to light, when it becomes dark outside, we start making melatonin, right? About two and a half hours after darkness, we go into deep sleep about six hours after darkness. And then we need that deep sleep to get refreshed for our muscles to repair, for our memory to happen, for our blood pressure to reduce, for our those flight and fright hormones like cortisol to reduce as well. And then we wake up in the morning when the sun rises again. But for so many people, either because of poor sleep hygiene, they're either having a cup of coffee at four o'clock. Now, caffeine has a half-life of 12 hours. So it's still very much in your system in the night. Um, whether it's lack of physical activity, whether it's, um, you know, having your gadgets on, your blue lights on, all of these things basically disrupt your sleep quality. And we don't realize that when we have medical conditions, for example, we see a lot of patients with, whether it's diabetes or PCOS, all of these things naturally and inherently disrupt sleep quality, right? So we're not delving into that. But then the minute we start fixing the sleep and we work on the sleep hygiene techniques, we diagnose if there's any obstructive sleep apnea going on. When we start fixing that and patients start feeling fresh when they wake up in the morning, they're automatically able to kick in. They're able to make a few changes. That is so true. I put up a story on my, on my feed yesterday and I said, so I've had a few sleepless nights and um, automatically my watch kind of senses it, right? So your heart rate goes up. I'm craving more. I want to eat like rubbish. Um, You know, I want to eat everything that I can get that is, you know, non-nutritious, which is completely fine. But it's important to be aware of that. And it's important to realize that the effect that sleep has on your overall well-being is just tremendous. Yeah, guilty. I've experienced it so many times. And even now, that I I know more, my son's older. When my son was first diagnosed with type one, I didn't sleep for like a year. And once I started sleeping again, and that's a whole nother podcast, but once (laughs) I started sleeping again, then things became easier for lack of a better word, cognitively being able to deal with the stress of everything. But even now, like you said, if you're not dealing with a child with a chronic condition, all of these the blue lights, the phone, the, you know, the stress, the everything. And then even if you have, you know, a glass of wine or two in it before you sleep, that affects your sleep as well. So 
waking up the next day and then you're not really set for success. And then you're just going to make questionable choices. It's like a cycle. Exactly. It's a cycle. And I think it's important to realize and, and recognize that quantity doesn't equal quality. So we have so many of our patients saying, oh yeah, I slept for seven nights or seven hours a day, a night, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting good quality sleep. If your gadgets are on right before you sleep, you're more likely not getting good quality sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other things that people can do to get better quality sleep? So the biggest kind of things is movement in the first half of the day or any movement, gentle movement throughout the day, Um, getting in sunlight, especially around the 11 to one kind of range, 11 AM to 1 PM kind of range, Uh, keeping your last cup of coffee at least 12 hours before you sleep, Um, making sure that post sunset, you're really kind of winding down everything. So I don't know, a lot of our houses even have the white lights in them. They all exhibit blue light. So they all have blue light, but the minute you switch to yellow lights, it actually starts making a huge difference to your sleep quality. We have some patients being like, how are you telling me to change the lights in my house? And then I'm like, trust me, just do it. And then they'll come back two weeks later and be like, oh my gosh, I'm falling asleep at like 9.30 or I'm falling asleep mm-hmm. at 10 So it really does, it's just the small switches, right? And I think um, making sure that your room is cool enough, you know, having, you know, a warm drink at night, like a non-caffeinated beverage, having a shower, all of those things kind of help to just improve sleep. Um, and then I think it's really important that kind of brings me on to another pillar, which is the mental health. So how are you doing in terms of your thought processes at night? Are you journaling? Are you not journaling? Are you overthinking? Where do you kind of need the support? I think that's where you need, really need to start thinking about sleep quality as well. Mm, all super important. Yeah, I love war- the warm light. And even before I realized that it had anything to do with sleep, I just never liked the the fluorescent yeah. kind of blue lights. And I was like, oh, what is that? But it feels it, unnatural to your body. It does. It does. It creates almost a physical reaction. Like even when I turned on my um, light here just to have better light. And I think the default setting for some reason, it starts with the blue light first. And I'm always like, oh my gosh, why do they even put that one on there? Because it's, it, it feels, yeah. you know, the warmer lights, they feel warm. It's like a, a gentle hug. It's, it's really, <laughs> it's so nice because it mimics the sun too. And I think that yeah. makes us feel better. The sun is always good. And so nutrition, I want to talk about this nutrition plant-based because I am a huge fan of the plant-based meal and, you know, managing diabetes in someone I see, I have this little, it's not scientific, but I test it. I have this little lab and I asked my son to go plant-based like full-on plant-based for like a week. And he and his father are like kebab lovers. My husband's from Turkey. So there's a lot of kebabs and I never really enjoyed red meat. So it's not a big thing for me, but I saw how it was creating insulin resistance and all these challenges. Um, And we always are told from the time we're young, you know, fruits and vegetables are important, but we don't really always know the reasons why. But now it's great that your son, they're talking about the, the microbiome and intestinal gut health and everything else. But when I put my son on a plant-based diet, not a diet, he was eating so many things, but just really got into all the beautiful plant-based recipes, which I love. I can eat every day and you feel so full. You feel so good. 
but in telling them like, Hey, let's do this and see like how it, how it goes. So we did that for a week and blood sugar numbers were amazing and better than ever before. And And actually, yeah, his endocrinologist was like, well, he's not really getting enough carbs. And I'm like, well, he, he was, but he's not just eating, you know, the carbs is all relative. Right. And there's a lot of foods that are super carb heavy that are processed and not great. Fruits have carbs and things like that, but sometimes you're not feeling the need to eat as much because you're full from the fiber and all these other things. But his blood sugar numbers were beautiful, like amazing. Yes, that, that, that's your own experience, which is amazing, but it is backed up by research. So we have like some big studies like the Adventist Health Study, which basically showed that vegetarian diets, plant-based diets have been really shown to kind of reduce and reverse the risk of chronic diseases like diabetes, Right. And when we think about our kind of diet approach or our eating approach, rather, um, I think there are two forms of eating that have kind of stood the test of time. And this is plant-based diets and the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people think that the Mediterranean diet, and I think the the Mediterranean diet, the kind of biggest study that was done was the PREDIMET trial, which is one of the largest dietary interventions that showed that the Mediterranean diet does improve risks of cardiovascular disease, chronic disease like diabetes. Um, compared to kind of low fat diet approaches, right? Which was something that was a craze like a few decades ago. Um, Now, when you're comparing both of these, the biggest component in both of them is vegetables, right? It is whole food, plant predominant, rich diets. And that's a common misconception that you have. If you actually look at the Mediterranean diet pyramid, you have your plants and your fruits and your vegetables down there, your legumes, your lentils, your healthy fats. And then you have your whole grains. And then as you move up the pillar, you kind of have your dairy products and your poultry and your fish. Now, those, if you look at it strictly in terms of a Mediterranean diet, are only there a few times a week. Right. And that's a common misconception that people have is, oh, the Mediterranean diet is no, I'm having um, poultry, meat or fish every single day. And that's what it is. But that's far from true. You've actually shifted around Mm -hmm. the pyramid. So when we're thinking about these diets, it's the reason why they do so well is exactly what you said. They're nutrient dense. Right. They have so many polyphenols, which are basically components that work as antioxidants. And they have their herbs and the spices as well, which is great. They have so much fiber in them. Now fiber will help to do multiple things in the body, like improve your gut health. Um, It also works really well for things like high cholesterol levels. It works really well to slow down the absorption of, you know, the carbohydrates or the, the quick acting carbohydrates in the blood, which then stabilizes the blood sugar levels. So you rightly said that when you're thinking about whole grains, you're thinking about carbohydrates. I think people have a tendency to feel like they need to go low carb, but they don't. It's actually focusing on the quality of carbs that you're getting, right? So are you someone who's turning into muffins and, you know, cookies and all of that, which is, which is fine in its own way, you know, occasionally, but instead of that, people think, oh yeah, I need to cut out those carbs completely. So I'm just going to cut out all, all carbs in my life. But then we don't think about the whole grains, which is what's actually providing you with essential nutrients, vitamins, and minerals, right? So I think in terms of what you're able to get from a whole, from a plant-based diet, or even a little bit of, little bit of the components of a Mediterranean diet, I think is a lot of satiety, 
um, it's fiber rich, it doesn't spike the blood sugar levels. So especially when you're adding in those combinations of, you know, the whole grain carbs with your proteins, with your healthy fats, with a lot of the fibers, the spikes that you get in your blood sugar level are going to be a lot less, right? And like you said, they naturally help you feel a lot fuller compared to foods that are processed or foods that are high in saturated fats because they take up very, very little room in your stomach. So they're not actually nutrient dense, they're energy dense, but make you feel hungry much quicker. So they really do have a hormonal effect in the body. That's so true. And while I say a lot, often, you know, oh, Turkish kebab and all of that, but because I lived in Istanbul for almost eight years. And I always often say, I didn't learn how to eat until I moved to Turkey. And why was that? Because especially in the Western part of Turkey, it's very focused on the Mediterranean diet. And the reason why fish, chicken, and all of that, traditionally, it's not like every day, every meal is because at home they're cooking these beautiful dishes that they, they call them like olive oil, olive oil based. So everything has, you know, a base of onion, garlic, olive oil, maybe a little bit of rice, but then it's all centered around these beautiful vegetables. And I was eating like crazy when I was there, just everything because I I love the food and, and vegetables, but I also lost weight without like trying. And, and I think it was because it was plant-based. Yeah. And I think it goes back to kind of that, you know, you picking beans out of your, your garden, because it goes back to that naturally raised protein, right? The source where it's coming from is just so, um, you know, authentic. And, and I think that's the issue, like going vegetarian isn't necessarily healthy if you're adding in a lot of processed foods, right? There's a lot of kind of meat substitutes right now that are high saturated fats. So it's not to say that, oh, just going vegetarian or just going whole food, um, just going plant-based in itself is health necessarily healthy. I think it's really important to think about where your quality is and where it's coming from. Um, that's probably more important than the actual food in itself in some cases. I agree. Absolutely. And so a lot of people that I meet and probably a lot of people you meet as well. Um, I think now the research is coming out uh, talking about it more, but keto, a lot so many i i know we I, I feel like we need to we need to talk about this a bit because so many people and maybe some people listening they'll be like yeah but i'm doing keto and i'm very lean and how long did it last for is what what i want to ask <laughs> i i know well that's the that's the thing like restriction should not be like a lifetime right we're talking about a lifestyle and some people have made it a lifestyle and there's some people that get you know really passionate about eating keto. Um, but it, it, what's coming out is that it's not necessarily the best way of eating over a long period of time. I think I need a whole other, you know, podcast on this. (laughs) We we can do that. We can do part two. (laughs) So the keto diet, I mean, keto diet medically has only ever been used for patients with epilepsy, right? Seizures. That's, that's why it came about. And then it got taken on by, you know, someone who wanted to lose weight and it worked and that's what's, that's, what's been done. So I don't doubt it. There are a lot of papers that have shown that, you know, the blood sugar levels reduce when you're on a keto diet, insulin resistance does reduce when you're on a diet, but the risk at which it comes with, including re-putting back on that weight, um, having disordered eating, having a terrible relationship with food, 
And really that kind of compartmentalizing your food and what you should be eating and what you shouldn't be eating. That's where it really goes wrong. So when you think about the evidence base behind how the keto diet works, and we work a lot of, we work with a lot of patients with diabetes, for example, or even with PCOS, where there's that underlying insulin resistance. When you think about the medical studies, there's actually no medical studies that have suggested that one diet is superior to another diet, right? Because in the long term, and we know from our studies that diets fail, (laughs) Yes. And it's sad because we feel like we're failing a diet when we go on it, but it's actually that the diets are failing, right? They're not meant to last. And that brings you into the territory of when you're saying that people become adopted as a lifestyle, that's when you know you have disordered eating relationships with food. That's when you know that you're bringing out eating disorders. And the same goes for, you know, when we're thinking about plant-based and eating healthy and all of that, there's the other end of the spectrum, which is orthorexia right? Where you're obsessed with eating healthy. So that in itself is also an eating disorder. But when you're trying to kind of include, and where we want you to be is kind of that, you know, the mindful and intuitive eating, where you're really including all food groups. That's where you kind of need to be. And that's where you kind of should be striving to be. So, so keto diet in itself, um, I, it's not something that I encourage. It's not something that the studies kind of long-term have shown great effect. It's, it's not sustainable. Yeah, um, I'm glad also you pointed out that while you might be eating healthy and only healthy things, that disorderly eating can happen on that journey. And we have a very recent example. I'm sure you read about it or saw the, the clip of Gwyneth Paltrow talking about what she eats during the day. And, uh, I just took a big sigh. She, she's beautiful. She's a wonderful actress. Um, you know, I don't want to talk badly of anyone, but that did not help anyone on a journey to health and wellness and improving their lifestyle because she said she has black coffee and then for lunch, she'll have bone broth and then vegetables for dinner. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, that's where, we're kind of shady in both territories and both extremes, right? Where you're either going on a restrictive diet or you're trying to eat too healthy. So both ends of the spectrum are not at all necessary. And we forget that we were all born as intuitive eaters. Now, intuitive eaters, I don't know if you've heard the work of Evelyn Tribol and Aline Reich. In 1995, they coined the term intuitive eating, which is basically a way of eating that helps to satisfy your body's hunger and fullness signals. And we've forgotten about this. I mean, we were all born as intuitive eaters where, you know, we'd understand when we're hungry, we'd understand when we're full. But then now with social media, with so much noise out there in the wellness world of, you know, go carb free and keto and go, you know, gluten free for certain conditions as well um, that don't require it, you know, apart from celiac disease. Um, I think there is so much noise out there that we've kind of forgotten how to eat intuitively. And that's, I had a patient and the majority of patients that we work with have forgotten what they enjoy eating because they've been so bombarded with so much noise in the wellness world that they've actually said, you know what, I don't eat anything like what I used to eat when I was five years old or what I grew up eating because I've just forgotten what I enjoy. I've forgotten what, where my values lie when it comes to my food. So I think it's, um, it's important to bring back those mindful and intuitive eating concepts where you're really honoring your, 
you know, your body's clock and you're honoring the hunger and you're honoring the fullness. And you're, you're also dealing with emotions in a way that is more wholesome rather than turning to food as well. So improving your relationship with food as well. I love that. Yeah. There's a lot of that discussion around mind and mindful eating, which we do as well here. And the intuitive eating, I had heard of the the term, but I wasn't sure who coined it, but yeah, I see it. And I think also, I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but my observation as well is that children were teaching them from a very early stage to not be intuitive eaters by letting them have a device when they're eating. So they're not eating mindful or here I see people chasing children around the park to try to get them to eat. And I'm like, well, maybe they're not hungry. Cause you know, if, unless you're worried about, you know, you have a child with type one and you're worried about a low blood sugar yeah. later, then of course you want them to eat and you need to get some carbs in them somehow. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. But when I see what looks like a young, healthy child and someone's always chasing after them daily to eat. And I'm like, maybe they're just not hungry. When they get hungry, they might come back to that. And it's super important. I'm sure it, and it's very hard to balance. And as parents, yes, you worry that your child's eating enough, but you might be setting them up for some kind of challenging relationship with food because they won't know when they're hungry or when they're not hungry or when they're supposed to eat or or not. So it starts really early on. And that's the age that's so impressionable. So a lot of the eating disorders that develop, you're right, it happens because of a trigger or something that's happened in childhood. And here we are sitting on the table being like, you're not getting off until you finish your plate. But they are actually so in tune with how full they are that they may genuinely just not want it, you know. And I think I think it's important that we start, you know, not and normalizing and even just when it comes to body image, you know, don't step on a scale, don't speak to your kids. Um, like, you know, there are certain foods that are good, or there are certain foods that are bad. Um, we have some women, you know, with body image issues, kind of pinching themselves in the mirror in front of their kids saying I'm too fat. And all of that really trickles down into your kids, right? They're so they're like sponges at that age. So I think it's, it's really important to be mindful of that. There's a book actually called How to Get Your Kid to Eat, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's what it's called. I'll give you the link of it later. Mm, but Okay. We can put that in the show notes too. Yeah. Um, it's a really great book to kind of talks about, you know, the the responsibilities as a parent and the responsibilities of your child. You know, your child is very much in control of or in charge of how much they eat, whether they eat or not. But you're in charge of things like what you put on the table, what time you're putting it on the table, because obviously those things are important as well. Right. But then how much your child eats is actually dependent on them. I love that. Is there one also a compliment to that, like how to eat as an adult <laughs> or, or, or that would be mindful eating? <laughs> so that's mindful eating. So I actually stumbled across the work of someone called Michelle May. Um, I'm not sure if you heard of her. So she's. Uh, I have taken her course and I'm accredited from her program yeah, in, in yeah. mindful eating. Yeah, yeah. Her work is really good and really so spot on. And I think she, um, I had a bit of a disordered, you know, journey with food and I kind of went from, um, you know, a stage of kind of very much under eating and, you know, borderline anorexia to, to binge eating. And I think she changed my life. I think it was work that was so powerful. Um, and like yourself, I did, I did the facilitator course. So it's, it's, and it really helps like the concepts of it really help with patients as well. So I would say for adults, that's probably the one book. Her book is really easy to read as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And there's also an audio book. If you feel you don't have time to read, you can, um, do it audio and she's got, um, you know, there's mindful eating for diabetes and other things as well, but 
the foundations are, are all the same. And, and similar to you also, when I went through it, like understanding mindful eating, but yeah, I also, you know, had a very interesting background with food and eating and all, all the challenges that I guess as a, a girl growing up in the U S and images that you're bombarded with and all these unhealthy diets that were out there in the eighties and nineties and, and everything else. So, so yeah, something like mindful eating is so powerful and helpful. And I think that in this day and age, we're, we're not doing enough of it. Sure. Sure. And so one more question for connection and positivity, what are you recommending typically that people do? So I think when it comes to connection, it's important to realize that connection is not only your relationship with those around you, right? So you obviously have your circles um, of your connection with your immediate family, you have your connection with your social circle, you have your connection with your community and your environment. So it really kind of goes down to layers, but it's also connection with yourself. And the first kind of work that we do is how do you speak to yourself? Okay. So many times we realize when you are faced with issues like type 1 diabetes or even type 2 diabetes or PCOS, um, obesity, automatically that self-language becomes really negative. And if we don't, and we're not in that position to change that out as a first, we're not going to be able to change anything when it comes to our, our behaviors, right? So that's kind of the first thing that we go through. And then when it comes to everything else, really thinking about where your values lie. So what is it that you enjoy doing for yourself? What is it that you enjoy doing with your family? How do you want to connect to your community at large? Where is it that you feel like you're able to contribute? These are the kind of things that we go through when it comes to connection, but really kind of honing in on those relationships. And the the big study was that Harvard study, right, by Waldinger. And and that kind of showed that over an 80-year period, People who did have positive connections and a social support system, they actually had better outcomes when it came to mental health and well-being as well. Yeah, that also comes up in the blue zones as well. That yeah. if if you are not coming to the local town meeting or church or whatever it is, social gathering, someone will, comes to check on you. Um, yeah. There's social connection. The other thing that I like also, Martin Seligman, um, the psychologist who yeah. is one of kind of the founders, for lack of a better word, of positive psychology in his workshops and stuff, he would have people write um, a letter to someone because he talks about gratitude and appreciation. And it's all about connection and connecting with people because people were coming to him saying, how can he be happy? And he found that that was like one of the last and final and most important pillars was the connecting with people. So he would make them write a letter of gratitude and that was part of the homework, or they had to call someone and read it. And then people would come back to the workshop the next day and just really, it, it completely changed everything for them. So the, the power of connection is. And I think that sense of community oh as well, right? And I think you do it a lot with your patients who have diabetes. And um, similarly, we, we're trying to do it for our patients as well who have chronic disease, especially PCOS, where through our platform, PCOS and us. But that sense of community, you really start realizing that it starts changing the way in which you think about your condition and then automatically positive psychology will then change your trajectories in the future. So that's so important. Um, it's very, very important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was really lucky to, I mean, I, it was an abyss and we were alone for a very long time, but once I started seeking out 
community or gatherings and things like this. And I, I would observe and, and then also how I would feel about it. And I thought that was really, you know, life-changing and, and it, it, there's so much to be said for community. And I think it's so great that as a physician that you also embrace it because some physicians are afraid of communities of patients. Um, they're, they're worried that they're going to get, you know, misled or not good clinical advice or something else. Um, so that's one or that they're just going to lose their track of their patient forever. They might, you know, just go down some other journey that might be dangerous for them. So, I mean, good communities will help you be mindful of that and always say, Hey, seek out the advice of your qualified doctor, but it's so powerful. And I think people have better outcomes. Yeah. Having said that, I think there are more healthcare professionals, especially the NHS now has group consultations where, you know, the doctor is present and you do have someone present that's validating everyone's thoughts and feelings and creating that sense of community, but in an environment that is medically safe and you're not giving out any information that's going to, you know, alter anyone's kind of pathway of management. Um, So it's definitely something that is becoming more studied. It's something that is being implemented in practice but I think we still have a long way to go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we do, but small steps. And I think what's happening in the area of lifestyle medicine is so exciting. I, I truly love it. And I'm so, I'm so glad that we met because finding other people that speak the same um, language that uh, it's, it's really a beautiful thing because it's really life-changing and you see it in, I see it in my clients. You see it in your patients all the time. We see it with our own eyes that it lifestyle change, health, chronic conditions, they're hard. Yeah. But if you embrace a more lifestyle balanced approach to it, a lot of things get a, much easier. It won't always be easy, but it gets easier. Yeah, yeah for sure. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank I really appreciate it. Me. I think we'll definitely have you back because there's so... <laughs> So much each each pillar and then some can be a podcast episode on its own. So I think we have a lot more to talk about. And I think also if you're listening, watch this space, there'll be some exciting collaborations and things coming up to you um, very soon. But thank you so much for joining me. And thank we look so forward for to talking me. to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks so thank much. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. And it's actually just so nice to have people to connect with in this space as well. Have a great day. You too. I loved this discussion so much and lifestyle medicine is something I'm incredibly passionate about and I'm always so happy to see more physicians embracing this approach to patient care because it absolutely works and when I speak with people who have seen doctors that approach their appointments with their patients in this way the patients are much happier. They feel much more heard and seen. And then they tend to go on and, and make lifestyle changes for the better. Um, as Dr. RT highlighted, the six pillars, nutrition, movement, stress management, sleep, connection, and substance control. Those are all, all very critical areas of our lifestyle that affect our health. If you'd like to learn more about lifestyle medicine. You can follow along at Diapoint. We have so many resources. And also please check the show notes. We will put links for how you can find Dr. Arati and learn more about her work. If you want to reach out and make an appointment with her, please do so. 
She's an incredible physician with a lot of substance and depth in the areas that she's working in. Thank you so much for joining us today.